Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Unhurrying with the Rule of Life series. This is a little bit odd, but they say the best way to die is actually by cancer or by another kind of disease that has a timeline attached to it, i.e., you have six months to live or you have nine months to live. Does that sound a little bit counterintuitive to you? It does to me. All, all the research says that, but it does to me. I would think they would say, well, in one fell swoop, motorcycle accident, beautiful fall day, highway one, last thought was cliff or whatever, you know? <laughs> Um, That's how I would want to go, for one, which is why my wife no longer lets me drive a motorcycle. (laughs) But, and with all due respect to the tragedy of death or or a motorcycle accident, the reality is that all sorts of doctors argue that, no, the best way to go is when you know I'm dying, and you have a few months or you have a set time for closure in your life to make things right, to call up that old friend or that estranged relationship and to tie off your relationships and to say goodbye. Those same doctors also tell us, based on observation and research as well, that often it's in those last conversations, that kind of final parting goodbye, where people offer, often you know, offer what we call famous last words, where people offer something to say as a final kind of farewell and anthem for what life is all about. On that note, the passage that we are about to read from John 15 is that from Jesus of Nazareth. It's actually part of what scholars call the upper room discourse, which is basically Jesus' parting word to his apprentices on the night before his death. He's just a few hours away from his arrest and then after that, his execution. Let's read Jesus' parting words to his apprentices. John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Did you notice how many times Jesus used that word remain? Remain in me. Remain in me as I also remain in you. Remain in my love. Jesus is just riffing on this one word over and over and over again. In fact, in those two paragraphs, he used it over 10 times. Older translations have the translation of abide. The Greek word is meno. Can you say that? And it literally means to make your home in or to dwell in or to live from. 
One translation has stay united with me. Another has remain in life union with me. Jesus' final word is that we are to make our home in God. We're to anchor our mind and our kind of awareness in connection to Jesus himself. We're to index our heart toward the reality of Jesus who is with us by the Spirit. Even our body itself is to move through our day and our week and our year with God in the kingdom. And that, Jesus says, is how you and I will, not might, not hopefully, but will bear fruit. Fruit that he goes on, if you keep reading, to define as love and joy and peace. You could call this Jesus' model of spiritual formation or the process by which we become more like Jesus. For Jesus, it's very simple. The way that we become more loving, more as not as defined by our city, but as defined by agape, more joyful and happy and at ease and grateful and content, more at peace, more of a non-anxious presence in our city and even in an election year, the way that we grow and mature into people of love and joy and peace in the way of Jesus is very simple. We abide, we remain, we make our home in him. Now, this, I don't know about you, but I hear it, and that all sounds great to me. But the question is how, all you pragmatics in the room. That's where your mind goes, and I love that about you. Especially in the day and age of the iPhone and Wi-Fi and news alerts and 5G, thank you, China, and urban noise and traffic and little kids or whatever your life is, how in the world do we slow down and live with Jesus? Well, this problem feels to me at least like is more acute now than ever before, but it's not just a late modern problem. It's an ancient problem. It's really a human one. And the answer that the early church or the first followers of Jesus came up with for it was what they called a rule of life. Rule of life goes back at least as far as St. Patrick and the Celts, likely far before to the second century, if not even earlier. But it was popularized by St. Benedict in 527 in Italy when he wrote up his rule of life for his brand new monastic order. Now, a rule of life is, again, ancient language. So I don't know about you, I hear that, and it sounds a little alien and weird to my modern Western ear. Please note that it is a rule of life, note the grammar, singular, not rules, plural, for life. The original Latin word was regula, where we get words like regular or regulation. There's a lexicographical debate over the origins of regula. Some scholars argue it was the word used for a trellis in a vineyard. Either way, even if that's, that etymology is not correct, the metaphor, that metaphor of a trellis and a vineyard was used very early on by teachers of the way of Jesus who took Jesus' metaphor of abide in me, the vine and the branch, to its logical conclusion. Just think if you've ever been wine tasting or your parents have or whatever, or you, you can think of a vineyard in your mind's eye. You're like, us for old rich people. Yes. Um, so whatever, if for a vine to, quote, bear fruit that remains, it needs a trellis. It needs some kind of a support structure to lift it up off the ground, create space for it to grow and mature, and to even point it in a certain direction for life. Otherwise, a vine without a trellis, just a wild vine out in nature, will bear a fraction of the fruit that it is capable of, and the little that it does bear will be vulnerable to predators like a coyote or a rabbit, not to mention to disease. In the same way, for an apprentice of Jesus to, quote, abide in the vine and bear much fruit, 
as Jesus himself said. We need a kind of trellis, a kind of support structure to create space for a life that is organized around abiding or a life of relational connection to Jesus himself. Now, what exactly is a rule of life? Andy Crouch, an intellectual I love, defines it as a set of practices to guard our habits and guide our lives. Stephen Makia, in his beautiful little book on this, defines it as, quote, a holistic description of the spirit-empowered rhythms and relationships that create, redeem, sustain, and transform. I would define a rule of life as a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that create space for us to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he would do if he were us. In Jesus' language, to abide in the vine and bear much fruit. Now, please note, it's a rule, not a law. What's the difference between a rule and a law? A law is handed down to us from an external source It is very little flexibility, it's guilt-innocence-based, and it's designed to keep us away from the negative. And that's not all bad. There is a time and a place for laws. A rule, on the other hand, is, as a general rule, no pun intended, is self-generated from your own desire, more on that in a minute, It has a lot of flexibility. It's not guilt-shame-based. It's all relationship-based. And it's designed to index you toward a positive vision of the good life. For example, Burnside, right up here, has a 25-mile-per-hour speed limit. That is the law. There's zero flexibility. It's not like 25-mile-per-hour unless if traffic's low, and then go ahead for 45 or whatever. It's not relational, like it's guilt-innocence. Burnside's not offended if you speed or whatever, you know? And it doesn't matter if it's 10.30 at night and it's not raining, it's a beautiful fall night like tonight, and you drive a Volvo or some car that has like a fancy computer to keep you from killing people or whatever. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Like, you have to drive 25 miles per hour. And if you're driving 30 or 31 or 27, you are guilty as charged and can be pulled over, and here's your ticket. On the other hand, uh, my wife T and I have a little rule, kind of rule of thumb, and, and it's in our rule of life for our marriage. And it's basically every day we shoot for 20 to 30 minutes to connect one-on-one just at some point each day. And then once a week, um, a night together, like without our beautiful children, um, just a date night out together, go out for dinner, or if we can't afford it that week or whatever, something else, like just where we just have time together. And then once a quarter, we shoot for a two-night three-day kind of staycation where my parents take the kids, we turn off our phones and hole up in our house and just relax and rest and recover. (laughs) And all of that from our wonderful children. Um, all, All of that. And it's, it's not, there's lots of flexibility in it. We miss it all of the time. Last two weeks, we're way off of our rule of life with our marriage. She was out of town for an entire week, and as you were here last week, didn't even text me back, so she's not even close, um, if you know about that. And then this last week, I had a few things going on and was out of town a little bit. So we're way off of our rule, and we don't feel guilt, we don't feel shame, but you know what we do feel? We feel tension in our relationship. We bicker way more. We're less in sync with each other. We don't enjoy each other's company as much because there's a reason we have that rule in place. It's a discipline, yes, and there are the rare time when it does feel like a duty, like, okay, Thursday night, here we go, it's date night, but it's a discipline that is there to create space for loving relationships. 
That's what a rule of life is for our relationship to Jesus and to other people. In the same way, a good rule of life should do at least three things. One, it should help us turn ideas into reality. It should take ideas like life in the kingdom of God or the Trinitarian community of love or becoming a person of agape, and it should get those ideas into our muscle memory to keep them from kind of devolving into a sentimental Christian cliche. Secondly, it should help us live in alignment with our deepest desires. We've done work um, recently over the last year on the New Testament theology of desire, Paul's language of the flesh and the spirit, and how the Christian tradition in general and Ignatian spirituality in particular, or the Jesuit order of spirituality, has a very sophisticated view of desire with a lot of nuance, way more than you pick up in the Portland kind of be true to yourself, follow your heart, zero sophistication, zero nuance in that view of desire. And in the New Testament kind of theology, you, you have in your body and in your mind itself, you have a war of desires, what one writer calls a war of loves, between what Paul calls your spirit, this inner part of your will that is directed toward God and the good and the beautiful and true, and your flesh, which is very similar to what like a, a secular neurobiologist would call your animal brain. These primal drives in all of us for sexual or sensual pleasure, for hedonistic gratification, for domination, for survival. And I don't know if this is true or not, but it feels like it's never been easier to get sidetracked by our animal brain than in the digital age, where not only are we distracted all of the time, as T.S. Eliot said, decades before Twitter, I assume that naming has no relation, quote, in this Twittering world where we are distracted by distraction. He said that, it's fascinating. As he, like, not only are we more distracted than ever, but marketing departments the world over have figured out how to manipulate the vulnerabilities in human psychology and how to monetize this part of our animal brain that is literally wired for comparison, to like plot ourselves, people above us, behind us, to our right, to our left, and for competition, and this deep urge that we all feel to look and feel good just in order to get us to buy a product. A rule of life is an act of defiance against the digital empire. It is a way of staying true to our deepest desires, not the surface level desires that we feel most days, but the deepest ones for union with God, for what the early church called theosis in Greek or deification, to become deified in the sense of to become like God himself in our inner woman or man and to do whatever it was that we were put on earth to do before God. So we don't get sucked off track into just scrolling on Instagram or buying more things that we don't need and eventually just throw out or watching Netflix late until the night. To really live in deep alignment with what we most want at the core of our being before God, where our spirit touches God's spirit in our soul. And finally, a good rule of life should help us experience peace day over week, over month, over year. Peace in the Hebrew sense of shalom, a deep, pervasive sense of well-being, that everything is okay, and I can take a deep breath and relax. Stephen Covey once said something to the effect of, we achieve inner peace when our schedule is aligned with our values. But because, that's not in the Bible, but I feel like if I was a heretic, I would add that in in my own version. It's so good. Because so often our schedules are not in line with our values. 
And we feel this low grade, like as a result, this low grade hum of anxiety that never goes away or guilt or shame or hurry or whatever it is, this nagging sense that our life is more reactive than it is proactive, that we're always tired and yet never getting to what we say matters most, that we are, as William Irvine put it, misliving. But still, even if I say all of that, a rule of life, if we're honest tonight, is a tough sell. In our antinomian culture, in a city like Portland, in a generation like yours or mine, most people, like the overwhelming cultural messaging that we receive, much of it from marketing departments that have a vested interest in you not having a rule of life because you're easier to manipulate that way, the overwhelming message that we receive is that rules are bad that rules constrict us and constrain us from our freedom rather than set us free to become our best self. And we forget that there is a deep part in all of us, whatever your personality is, whether you're a J or a P on the Myers-Briggs, whether you're a four or a one on the Enneagram or whatever, there's a deep part in all of us that craves a sense of order in the chaos of life. I don't know about you, and I hesitate to say this, but I found last year in particular the Jordan Peterson phenomenon just fascinating from an objective kind of like observer on the sidelines. Here comes this dude out of nowhere, this Canadian public intellectual who's basically a center-left classic Jungian clinical psychologist. And he has a really fascinating critique of how far left the left now is, in particular of Marxism and postmodernity and some of the ways that it's thrown, away, thrown around at a popular level. Now, he's not actually a conservative, so everybody hates the guy, right? Liberals all hate him because he's not liberal enough. Conservatives all hate him because he's not actually a conservative. So he's ostracized. He becomes a social pariah. He's ostracized by pretty much every major media outlet in the world. Every op-ed I could find on him was all negative, most of it just character slander. Every intellectual I read on him, it was just a poo-poo him off to the side. And yet, he publishes a book called, wait for it, 12 Rules for Life. Can you think of a less millennial title? then 12 rules for life, and over a year, don't quote me on the exact stat here, but for basically a year and a half, it is the number one best-selling book on Amazon.com all over the English-speaking world. So as our culture is spinning into this hyper-antinomian, anti-tradition, the left is just carpet-bombing every religion and tradition, Eastern, Western, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, just everything. Throw out the baby with the bathwater. Everything is be true to yourself, do whatever you want, freedom, don't let anybody tell you what to do or who to be. The best-selling book in the world is about rules. And I read it, just, and I don't say that to critique or to condone him. I have no comment on his work. But I, out of curiosity, I read it. And you know, his opening chapter is on, he's an expert in kind of mythology and psychology, is on Genesis chapter one. And he basically makes the point that there's a deep human urge in all of us to create order out of chaos. And there is always a tension between order and chaos, between structure and spontaneity, between freedom and in rules. And his basic case is that right now in our cultural moment, everything is freighted way over to the side of chaos, freedom, do whatever you want, do what feels good in the moment. And the result is, and this is where he is right in line with all the empirical data, the result is anxiety. You don't have to agree, you don't have to like him or agree with him or his work to say, yeah, that's basically true. As a general rule, too much structure and we suffocate 
And this was a problem in previous generations, in particular for women and others in our culture. But too much freedom, as defined as it is now, which is not the classical definition and the Christian definition, but as the current one is, basically the ability to do whatever you want, keep your options open. And what happens then is our anxiety goes through the roof. Case in point, Cheesecake Factory. You ever been there? Like, my idea of a good restaurant is like four things on the menu. I just relax. My idea of hell is the all things Cheesecake Factory, right? Have you ever been there? Like, I've only been a few times, but inevitably you have some suburban friend who just drags you out to Cheesecake Factory or factory your grandma or something, and, and you sit there. If you've never been there, you open the menu, and first off, it's basically an advertisement, and in between the advertisements, it's like a, it's like a textbook. It's, I don't know how many things they have on the menu, hundreds? I have no idea if that's an exaggeration or not. And I just feel my limbic system just spike with a deep primal fear. It's like a predator just came out at me or something. I'm <laughs> scared to death because of so many options. And, and the reality is the more options that you have, which often come the more upwardly mobile you are, the more money you have, the more you're in an urban context, the more you're in a leftist or liberal or progressive kind of context, the more anxiety you feel. Psychologists argue that for mental health, it's far better for children to be raised in a conservative home than a progressive home because children freak out when there isn't structure, boundaries, rules, law, order. It's so counterintuitive to everything that we hear, much of, which, much of it with a capitalistic agenda because people that don't have a rule of life are easy prey. Margaret Gunther, wife, mother, and Anglican priest, and also beautiful writer, in her little book on the rule of life, says it so very well. Quote, a good rule can actually set us free to be our true and best selves. It is a working document, a kind of spiritual budget, I like that, not carved in stone, but subject to regular review and revision. It should support us, but never constrict us. And there's that healthy balance. Now, if you hear all of this, and it sounds overwhelming to you, you're already tired and stressed out, and now you're like hearing about how you're doing something else wrong from me, or it triggers a deep emotional kind of defense mechanism in you, the antinomian, anti-rule thing, or a wound from a legalistic prior church experience, or you're like current church experience, or whatever, <laughs> um, here, here is something for you to consider, if you just take a deep breath. You already have a rule of life. All of us do. Whether it is written or unwritten, intentional or unintentional, conscious or subconscious, whether we're aware of it or not, wise or foolish, based on a long-term vision of the kind of person you want to grow into or a short-term instant gratification pleasure you want to feel, the odds are that you have a basic way that you live some kind of a morning routine, some kind of a, like something in your muscle memory about how soon you pick up your phone upon waking, some kind of a sleep pattern, maybe something for exercise or a time you get ready and go to work or have to show up for work, ways you spend your money, whether you have a budget or not, you likely have some, this is kind of how I spend my money, this is kind of how I eat, this is kind of when I do all of that. The question is not, do you have a rule of life? It's, do you know what your rule of life is? And more importantly, do you know what your rule of life is doing to you? Because everything that we do, it does something to us 
This is theology, this is neuroscience, this is philosophy, this is all of the cumulative wisdom of the human tradition. The things that we do do something to us. They make us more free or more in slavery. First we make our choices, philosophers say, and then our choices make us. They make us into a kind of man or woman who is more on the trajectory toward heaven or hell, if you want to use that language, life or death, freedom or slavery. So the question is not, do we have a rule? It's, do we know what it is? And is it intentional? And, and what is our rule doing to the person that we are becoming? And is it in alignment with our deepest heart's desire, the kind of woman or man that we ache to grow and mature into? So our goal is to help you create your own personal rule of life. We can't do it for you, but we can aid. One that is a good fit for your personality, your season of life, kind of what you feel called by God to do in the world, and that over the years just makes it possible for you to live in peace. With just you wake up and you feel the peace of God and you live into your deepest desires for a life in the kingdom with Jesus. For now, let's shift gears tonight and do a few best practices for how to actually do this. The rest of our time is going to feel a little bit more like a tutorial than a sermon, so I'm not sure if I should say I'm sorry or you're welcome. But um, that's fine with me because the whole point of a rule of life is to move from kind of information and inspiration to formation, to get something out of your mind and into your muscle memory. So really fast, here's seven things to keep in mind as you come up with your own personal rule of life. First is this, just start small. It's tempting to overreach and attempt to live like a monk or a nun from day one, you know? Like, let's do all of the things right now. Uh, Margaret Grunther calls this first day of Lent syndrome, <laughs> which I love, it's fantastic. And that is a strategy bound to fail. Start, as a general rule, the adage is start where you are at, not where you should be, where you think or feel you should be. Don't let guilt or shame or anxiety or legalism or pressure from the stage motivate you, but let love and desire to follow God and to receive his love motivate you. Often our excitement, we just take one or two or 10 steps too many, in particular those of you that are a little bit more type A in the room. For example, with the exception of parents with young kids, the general rule of thumb, and I hesitate to say this, but this, the general rule of thumb from teachers of the way of Jesus for hundreds if not thousands of years from all over the world, men, women, all the things, is that if you really want to cultivate life with God in the kingdom and grow into a person of love, the general rule of thumb is that takes about an hour a day of prayer. And not prayer in the sense of like interceding naked on the roof for revival, you know? Because um, you have to do that one naked, you know? Um, but like just prayer in the sense of time that is specifically dedicated to God. That could be reading the scriptures. It could just be sitting before God. It could be gratitude. It could be worship by singing based on whatever your preference or personality is. About an hour a day. Now, that might sound overwhelming to you, and I totally get that. But then just think about the fact, the average American spends two hours a day on Facebook products. For most of you in the room, that would be Instagram. Just look at your phone over the last week and just look at how much time you spent on Instagram. My guess is an hour a day. So we have this, it's not as overwhelming as it sounds. All that to say, if you're here and you don't spend any time every day or in the morning or whatever in prayer, don't start with an hour. 
because that's like what Mother Teresa said to Henry Nouwen, like one hour a day. Like, don't start there. Like, don't go from zero to 60. If you don't do anything or you do very little, like, don't feel any guilt or any shame. Again, this is just all, how much space do you want to make in your life for God to love you? Start with five or 10 minutes. Start with like a very practical thing, like buy an old school analog alarm clock. Right, because 90, the stats are 93% of millennials sleep with their phone next to their bed. Neuroscientists tell us this is one of the worst possible things that we could do, is sleep by our phone and check it first thing upon waking. What happens, I don't understand the science, is way over my pay grade, but when you sleep, neurogenesis, one of the most important, or the most important time of day for your brain, your mental health, your IQ, all of that stuff, and scientists tell us that the last thing you think about before you go to bed and the first thing you think about when you wake up will shape your brain more than anything else. So just, just think about what happens to an entire generation when the last thing most people think about is soft porn on Netflix and the first thing most people think about is a tweet from Donald Trump or an angry text from the boss or a catch-up on email, or an unrealistic scroll through Instagram where everybody's beautiful, famous, and happy, and you're just late for work again, <laughs> right? Um, what, did, what are you doing to your brain? To, to what are we doing to our neurobiology, to, in the language of the New Testament, to our soul? So honestly, one of the like, most radical things you could do this week is just like go up the street, go up Burnside to Goodwill, and buy like an old-school 80s alarm clock, and put your phone in another room, set your alarm, and when you wake up, just before you go out and check your phone, just take five or 10 minutes and just breathe. Sit on the edge of your bed and just welcome the day with gratitude. Maybe read a psalm. All you type A people, not Psalm 119. Start with something small, okay? <laughs> like a poem. Should take you a minute or two or three if you're really relaxed. And maybe just spend a few minutes after that just contemplating the love of God for you. Now, will that turn you into Henry Nouwen or Mother Teresa? No. You need to do more. But if, if that's where you're at, man, don't just, that's a beautiful, that's where you start. Five or 10 minutes every morning will radically alter, change your life and your destiny. The point is, some of you are brand new to following Jesus. Others of you have been doing it for decades. Some of you are totally addicted to your phone. I think of my mom who doesn't know how to text me back on her phone. It's not her main problem in life or whatever. We're all coming at this from a different place. And so just start right where you're at and start small with joy in your heart. No guilt, no shame. Secondly, and much quicker, but not in a hurry, <laughs> because that's bad, <laughs> be specific. Um, you know, if a rule of life isn't specific, if it's not like very clear and to the point, it's not actually a rule of life. It's like the, you know, like the aspirational ideas, like I think of my in-law's house. On the inside of the bathroom, they have one of those like lists of like, always tip extra and pet the dog and, you know what I mean? Have you seen those things? Aspir like a list of aspirational ideas. And it's all great stuff, but it's like, yeah, I don't actually do most of that stuff because it's not in my rule of life. So make sure that it's specific, i.e. Sabbath on Sunday or something like that, not, quote, be more relaxed, or something aspirational, but really vague, if that makes sense. Three, subtraction, not addition. 
Meaning, don't add on more to your already overbusy life. Please, if you hear nothing else tonight, hear my invitation and even call to you to do less. We're not saying, oh, you're already stressed out of your mind and overbusy and you don't sleep enough and you don't have enough unstructured time. Now make sure you spend an hour a day in prayer and read through the entire New Testament every day and exercise four days a week because it's holistic and like all the things. No, the point, that's all great stuff, but the point is to slow down and to simplify your life, to cut things out, to make space, again, for what you deepest, your deepest desire. Four, take into account your season of life and stage of discipleship. Um, there's not a lot at the seven, but, if you have, but I hear some. If you have little kids, go really easy on yourself. And remember that children can function just as well as a monastic bell to call you to prayer and to love. If you don't know what I'm referring to, you know, monasteries that, again, started with the rule of life, St. Benedict and others, are organized around prayer. In, in uh, the Benedictine order, there are seven hours of prayer a day. So if you ever go out to Mount Angel Abbey, if you don't know about, by the way, there's a beautiful Benedictine monastery, 50-minute drive from here out in wine country. I go there all the time. You can go just for the day. You can spend the night. I think it's a suggested donation of like 35 bucks a night or something. But if you don't have the money, you, they just will welcome you. They'll feed you. They'll care for you. Beautiful space, and seven times a day you hear the bells literally ring. This is a thousand-year-old tradition, right, over that. You hear the bells ring, and then there's an invitation to go pray with the monks, right? And it rings once in the middle of the night, like two or three in the morning. I always wake up and think I'm so glad that there are people who pray um, a lot, and then I go back to sleep. <laughs> and um, so whatever, whatever it is. But the reason that St. Benedict and, and other monastic orders had bells was par partially just to rally people together like to pray when guys are off, you know, or, or nuns or whoever are off working. But it was also St. Benedict's deeper agenda was to teach monks and nuns that your time is not your own and that life is not about you looking and feeling good. It's about becoming a person of agape. And so he would literally teach his monks, like, if the bell rings and you're in the middle of writing a letter, you stop mid-sentence. You put down your quill or whatever it would have been, and you walk to the chapel to pray. And Ronald Rollheiser and some other spiritual writers have done great work on saying how actually if you're like a full-time parent, you're basically in a monastery, a domestic monastery. You're like withdrawn from the world. You're cut off from human civilization. Right? You're smiling at me. You've had a couple of kids. You know what it's like. You're cut off from human civilization. Your time is not your own. And, and he makes the point that every time your child interrupts you, it can be a monastic bell. It can be a call from God to prayer and to agape to remind you that your time is not your own. The many of you that don't have children yet, maybe your monastic bell is your roommate, or your monastic bell is the call from somebody in your community or just had a really tough call with his boss and just needs somebody to process with. Or your monastic bell could be a prompting of the spirit to go pray for somebody on the street. These interruptions that most of us, myself included, respond to with agitation or impatience or annoyance. But each one of them can function like a, a little monastic bell to call us off of the egoic operating system. Few things do this better than parenting. There are others, but few, that call us off of the egoic operating system to become people of agape. 
My point is, we have to take into account our season of life. You have little kids, or you're single, or you're not, or you're caring for elderly parents, or you're brand new to following Jesus, or you've been at it for decades. Whatever it is, don't just copy some cut, copy, and paste formula. You have to take into account where you're actually at before God with flexibility and a warm and generous heart. Five is take into account your personality. Again, this is pretty basic stuff. If you're introverted, don't feel guilt or shame over that. Carve out lots of time to just sit before God. And when you do come visit the rest of us once a month, you will come with... (laughs) Thank you, Carol. So nice to have you back. We missed you. But you will come with wisdom and calm and poise and prophetic invitation. On the flip side, if you're extroverted, don't feel bad about that. Like, carve out all sorts of times just to be with family and friends. If you connect with God through nature, then go hiking a lot. If it's through poetry, then read poetry a lot. I mean, whatever it is, don't hold yourself up against an arbitrary ideal for all people for all time. But craft a way of life that is you before God. Number six, keep a healthy balance of upstream and downstream practices. We've done work on this before. By upstream practices, we mean practices or disciplines that are really hard for you. I just feel like, oh, man, I'm swimming upstream. This is not all that pleasant. It doesn't come easy to me. It doesn't come naturally to me. But they really target your shadow side. They target the part of you where you're really weak, and you or I have a lot of growth ahead of us on the road with Jesus. But then we also need downstream practices or disciplines, which just are the opposite. They are fun. They are life-giving. They don't even feel like spiritual disciplines. They just feel like having fun with Jesus and his people or whatever, and they just flow naturally out of our being. I think as a general rule, we need a lot of downstream practices and a few upstream practices. But there need, we need to architect some kind of a healthy balance. Finally, make sure, number seven, that your rule is holistic, meaning you are a whole person. I love that word, holistic. Jesus said that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, meaning with all that we are. The downside to a moniker like spiritual disciplines is we forget at some level that everything is a spiritual discipline. Scrolling on Insta is a spiritual discipline. Watching Netflix is a spiritual discipline. Going to 24-hour fitness is a spiritual discipline. Sleeping in is a spiritual discipline. Meaning everything that we do, it does something to form our spirit, our inner woman or man. Now, whether it's formation or deformation, whether it makes us more like Jesus or less, more loving and joyful and peaceful, or more angry and anxious and you know, unhappy, Either way, at some level, everything we do is a spiritual discipline. And our goal as followers of Jesus is to lay all that we are before God as an act of worship. In the language of Romans 12, as a living sacrifice. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Romans chapter 12, which is a well-known line. If you're new to the Bible, go read it on your own time. But in his paraphrase, he has this. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. 
All that to say, make sure that you put in like the classic spiritual disciplines into your rule, like morning prayer or church or life in community, beautiful. But also make sure you put in things like sleep. Like mine literally has sleep eight hours a night in my rule. And exercise and whatever your hobby is, like golf or Call of Duty or whatever your thing, maybe don't put that one on there. Um, whatever your thing is, longboarding or whatever, surfing, whatever it is, or hang out with Joe or like whatever. Put all of your life, your budget, how you eat, your diet, what night you cook in, like put all, all of your life matters. We've done work on this before. There's no word in Hebrew for spiritual because at some level, all of your life is spiritual. All of your life is about your spirit before God and who you are becoming. That said, a few things to remember as you craft your rule. One, remember that a good rule is a working document. So it will change year over year, season over season. If you get married, it will change. If you have a kid, it will change. If your kid moves out, it will change. If you go through a crisis, it will change. If you have a revelation before God, it will change. And that's right, because you change. Because to be human is dynamic, not static. It's a moving target because, in a sense, you and I are a moving target. So make sure that you always revisit, 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 just to ask with honesty and compassion, is this still doing its job to bring my soul before the life of Jesus. Second, remember that a good rule is a means to an end. I say this all the time, but I just have to say it until I'm blue in the face. A rule of life is just like all of the practices or spiritual disciplines. All of them are a means to an end. So the end goal is not, I have a rule of life and I'm really disciplined with it. Who cares? The end goal is that you're becoming more loving and more joyful and more peaceful in the kingdom of God with Jesus year over year. A rule of life is just a tool to that end. You don't even have to do it if you don't want to become, you know, loving and joyful and peaceful. You don't need to do it um, at all. <laughs> sorry, it's a little sarcasm there, which I'm still working on with Jesus. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like the later, the more tired I get as the day goes on, the, the less Christ-like I am, which is a whole, which is why I sleep eight hours a night is on my rule of life. But um, it's a means to an end. The end is to experience life in the kingdom of Jesus and be transformed into the image of Jesus. Finally, number three, remember to prioritize rest. It's really tempting just to make your rule of life a list of things to do. It's just as important that it's a list of things to not do or specifically to rest. Richard Foster, in his um, famous book, The Celebration of Discipline, which was written just about 45 minutes from here, down by George Fox, and really kicked off the spiritual formation movement as we know it in the American Protestant vein of the church. He separated the classical list of the spiritual disciplines into two categories, disciplines of abstinence and disciplines of engagement. Disciplines of engagement are, are ones like the one you're doing right now, like church, or what he called worship where you're doing a spiritual discipline right now. You're doing something to form your spirit right now, and you engage, you stand, you come, you sing, you give, you pray, you clap, you celebrate, you listen, all of that stuff. Disciplines of abstinence are, are where you abstain. It's about not what you're doing, but what you're not doing. So fasting is the example par excellence, where you abstain from food. Or silence and solitude, where you abstain from noise and stimuli and other people. I think as a general rule, again, this is an oversimplification, but as a general rule, the more busy your life is, the more you're in an urban or metropolitan context, 
the more you're in a job that isn't just like a way to pay the bills for you, but it's some kind of a career or even more, it's a vocation, you feel like it's your calling in life. The older you get, the more responsibility you have if you're a parent or you're in a marriage or some kind of a long-term relationship. The more your life is full, the more you need to prioritize disciplines of abstinence, specifically disciplines of rest, such as Sabbath and silence and solitude and quiet in the morning and sleep. Things like this become more and more and more important as we just get sucked into the overwhelming tide of hurry and busyness and stress and overload that is life in our world. And the reality is that many of us are just so busy, we have A, very little unstructured time, what Swanson calls margin, which he defines as the space between our load and our limits. And sadly, when we do have unstructured time, often it's just swallowed up by the digital carnivore in two seconds flat. We just, we have a quiet moment, and whether it's four hours long or four minutes long, we just reach for our phone and we just get sucked down the gravity well. And that's not all bad to stay up late watching Netflix or, you know, see your cousin on Instagram or whatever at all. But very few of us get done like binge watching the latest show or scrolling through Instagram for 45 minutes and just say, ah, I feel so aware of God right now. I just feel so happy, I feel content. I really like how God made my body. I just feel really great about who I am, but not in an arrogant way, just in like a really strong body self-confidence kind of way. I feel really content with my life. I don't wish it was different or wish I had more money or wish I was prettier, more successful or cooler. I just feel like, ah, oh, pinch me. My life is amazing. <laughs> and I can't wait to wake up in the morning and just, I have so much to contribute to the world with joyful creativity and generosity. Ah, let's do it. Like, and I, that's a character, but, None of us feel that way after watching Jack Ryan season two or whatever. Like most of us just feel insecure or discontent or tired or dang, I stayed up too late again. I'm gonna be exhausted tomorrow at work. Do I have to go? Okay, right? And that's why so many of us, our life feels full or even overfull, but yet unfulfilling. And it's because we're really busy but the hard truth is we waste a lot of time. When we could give over some of that extra time that we have after work and responsibility to a kind of what one writer I love calls a holy leisure, a where, where we rest and we play and we celebrate and we cultivate a grateful, joyful life before God and with God, holy leisure. Now, how do we do this? Well, there's no right way to make a rule of life, just like there's no official orthodox kind of rule of life that's been passed down through church history for all people for all time. There are best practices that you are wise to pay attention to or heed or incorporate into your rule, such, no matter what your personality is and all of that, such as morning prayer or church on Sunday or a day of Sabbath rest, but there is no one-size-fits-all approach, which means you have all sorts of freedom, like kind of do it however you want. If you're an engineer type, Make a spreadsheet in Excel. If you're an artist, like paint a mural on your apartment wall, ask your landlord first, but whatever. <laughs> um, and my pastor told me to do it. No, I did not, all right. 
and um, do it by yourself if you want or do it with your friends. Just tap into your creativity like the sky's the limit on what is possible. Now that said, we have created a template for you and a workbook actually for you to get started. It's on practicingtheway.org slash unhurry for the week ahead's practice. I'm really proud of the work from our team. I think it's really phenomenal. It's kind of a, a compilation of best practices. We broke the template into seven categories, abiding practices for abiding, mind, which has to do with your devices as well, body, holistic, relationships, rest, work and money, and gospel and hospitality. We explain each one in the workbook. There's a short little word on each, but please, it's just a template. It's just to get you started. So feel free to adjust, change, throw it out, scrap it, pull part of it in, whatever you want as you see fit. There are basically four steps, like if you want to chart a course for how to craft your rule of life. One is you just start, and this is what's on the docket for this week, you start with a time and a habit audit. And this is just an attempt for you to ascertain what your current rule of life actually is. So um, you just pay attention. You can do this for two hours or for a couple minutes. But just get out a piece of paper and write out what you spent your time on this last week, what you spent your money on. Pull up that little thing on your phone that's super embarrassing that tells you how much time you actually spent on certain things. We do that once a year as a community, and then we go around and we have to read it to each other. It's the worst week all year long. I found out my wife apparently text messages for seven hours a day or something insane. She's great with Instagram. She's horrific with texting. So um, like, it's really good. It's really helpful to know how much time is lost to whatever it is for you. And then secondly, once you kind of figure out, you get a rough you know, feel for, okay, that's, this is kind of my current rule of life, as you begin to craft a, a new one that's maybe a little bit more intentional, maybe a little bit more built around your deepest desires, the first thing you do is just put in whatever is most important to you. And like, imagine like when you pack for a trip and you only have so much space in your suitcase. And so what do you do? You put in the non-negotiables first. Socks, underwear, toothbrush, you know, whatever. For me, like my whole portable coffee setup with like the collapsible, you know, uh, thing. And it's a whole, I don't want to talk about it. Um, but <laughs> that's non-essential, that's, that's non-negotiable for me, okay? And, um, like, and it's going to be different for all of you. Like, I, I hate Kindle. I have, like, anathema with Kindle. I'm, like, believe that a book is a codex. It's a thing. It's an object. It's a whole, I have a whole spiel. So, so like, when I travel, I carry books with me. And everybody's like, why are you carrying, like, big theology books with you? For, and you're going to read it for, like, 20 minutes, like, on the one. It's just, it's just how I roll, okay? This is just me. Respect me. So that's, <laughs> that's right. So... My point is, you put in what's non-negotiable first, and then you see what space you have left. There's not enough room for your whole closet. There's not enough room for all the things. So you put in what matters most, and then you see what you have left. That's how a rule of life should work. Like you will, it will fill up really fast. Your schedule will fill up really fast. Your budget will fill up really fast. Your priorities will fill up really fast, and you will be forced to confront your limits. We'll give you a theology of that in a few weeks. And it's a really hard thing to do and a really beautiful and freeing thing to do. But in those moments, you put in what matters first and then you see what's left. Third, you try it out. You just try it on for a few weeks. Give it a little bit of a test drive, see how it goes, adjust, edit, play with it. See, how does it feel really boring or really life-giving? Is it an instant hit or, ah, that feels really weird? And then finally, you revise and commit. 
based on your trial run. You just make whatever changes you and or your community think are wise, and then you commit to it for a set time. And this is really key, because you don't let your emotions decide whether or not you do it or not. Like the whole point is to override some of the undulation of your emotions and your whims day to day and to live by what you know is your deepest desire underneath all of that. So I would recommend a minimum commitment of three months and a maximum of, say, a year, where you just say, for this period of time, I just crafted one in May with a bunch of my friends, and we committed to it for one year. We literally all went outside and we signed on the dotted line. Like, we signed, we're going to live by this rule for the next 12 months of our life and hold each other accountable to it. Something, doesn't have to be that extreme, but something like that is wise. Now, to end, um, there's a saying from the business world that is used by consultants when they come in to help out a business with the bottom line. But I love to quote whenever we teach on spiritual formation, and it's this. Your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you are getting. When you apply that logic to your spiritual formation or your emotional health or your relationship with Jesus or other people, the results, if the results that you are getting are I live with a low-grade anxiety. I hate how I just get sucked into my phone. I hate that I'm in debt and I'm always behind on my budget. I don't like how far I feel from God. I don't like how I know a lot of people, but I don't feel like depth of intimacy with that many people. I feel weird about my body or I feel uncomfortable in my own skin or I'm tired all the time and I don't sleep or whatever it is then the odds are that something about the system of your day-to-day life, or mine, is off kilter. As we like to say, our life is the byproduct of our lifestyle. This is why Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Not just the truth. I'm not just theology. I'm not just the Bible. I'm a way of life. I'm a whole way to be human. As Peterson said, it's the way of Jesus wedded to the truth of Jesus that brings about the life of Jesus. Willard said something to the effect of, we must arrange our days so that we are experiencing deep joy, peace, and contentment in our life with God. That's all a rule of life is. It's just an attempt to arrange our days so that we are experiencing a deep joy of life in the kingdom with Jesus. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.